drama, drama, drama. This is Patty Perez, and you're listening to the Drama Free Workplace Podcast, where I combine the wisdom passed down to me by my drama free Salvadoran parents with the lessons I've learned from nearly 30 years working as an attorney, workplace investigator, author, and speaker. We'll cover topics from faith to friendship, ethics to equity, bullying to bias, and everything in between. I throw in a dash of my Latina sass and bring my perspective as a mom, wife, daughter, and friend to make the serious topic of workplace conflict seem less daunting so that you can manage and resolve drama effectively. Hi there, listeners. Welcome back to the Drama-Free Workplace Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Perez, and joining me again is Katie, my Hi. human Swiss army knife, as you'll remember from last week. Welcome back, Katie. Thanks. So happy to be here. Absolutely. And our inaugural episode of You Can't Make This Shit Up. How excited are you? I have my popcorn at the ready. I'm ready to drink and sip some tea. Awesome. Okay. Get that teacup ready. So today's episode is called Cheetah Porn, and I'm sure that everyone is uh, on pins and needles to figure out what that is. So one of the things that I loved, loved, loved about being a workplace investigator and mine, as my listeners know, was was as a consultant. And so I went from workplace to workplace. It was kind of like being a temp, which is also something I did in high school and college and and really (laughs) liked uh, because you never get bored. And um, so in addition to being very fascinating, really fulfilling my desire to understand human behavior and human motivation in a deeper level. Um, What also was fascinating is that I got to discover details about industries and organization. One day I might be talking to a CEO of a tech company. The next day I might be speaking in Spanish to a line worker at a factory. Hmm. Um, And the next day to a scientist who had to give me an explanation of why he or she thought that the performance evaluation that they received was subpar or or incorrect. Um, So as you can imagine, in fact, I know that you've got a little bit of of experience, um, Katie, with the the leasing or the temp industry. And so it's exciting. Yeah. You're never left for want, you know, always something to do. Absolutely. So First of all, um, this is was ne- not necessarily done on purpose, but I do think it's kind of appropriate that the inaugural episode of the You Can't Make This Shit Up um, series that we're doing is actually related to my swan song investigation. It is actually the last investigation I ever conducted. As I've indicated, I uh, performed in excess of 1,200 of them, so that was over many, many years. Um, and uh, this was the very last one. So here's the story. Um Katie, did you know, did you know that female cheetahs ovulate on demand, not on a schedule? I did not. Most people do not. Yeah. Yeah, except for animal researchers. So I was doing an investigation that involved a group of scientists of, of animal researchers who were researching all types of, of um, species and, and animals, uh, many of them with the primary intent of looking at animals that were dwindling in the wild and, and trying to find out more about them uh, in order to keep them and their species alive. So in this case, it was cheetahs. And one of the things that, that I guess was discovered a long time ago by those in the know is that female cheetahs do indeed ovulate on demand, not on a schedule. 
Wow. And um, so in fact, as a result of that, the the age-old question has in fact been, what makes a female cheetah ovulate? And um, as this was being explained to me, because I'm me and a little bit irreverent, um, but I actually kind of meant this, this question seriously, as I said, well, in doing your experiment, did you show cheetah porn to the cheetahs? <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's a valid question. So hence the title. This is the beginning of the investigation. Um, that's sort of the backdrop of it is that these were animal researchers, animal behavioralists who, who were looking at these issues. Fascinating. Um, I'm not going to get into all of the scientific stuff, um, even though it is it is absolutely fascinating. But this involved an investigation with one of the, the top researchers in this particular organization. And as it turns out, which, um, you know, one of the things that I'm going to be covering in this series is... Uh, some of these patterns that I uncovered, uh, as you know, Katie, that's one of the things that I really focus on in, in my book is that I started to see that there were these patterns um, that I saw over and over and over. And so I'm going to be talking to, uh, about many of those during this series. And that's what I'm going to focus on today as well. So in addition to finding out um, interesting scientific information about cheetahs and, and uh, ovulation and, and how not to make them uh, become extinct, there were certain things going on in this particular workplace. And so one item, one issue that came up that was one that was very common in many of my investigations was that this was the worst kept secret in that organization. Um, Katie, in, in your own work experience or talking to your friends, have you found that to be true that you know everyone knows who that employee is, who that leader is? It's oh. just nothing is done about it. Oh. Absolutely. Uh, like everyone talks about it. Everyone. Right. But no one in leadership will bring it up. Yeah. I, I've actually, uh, it, it's interesting because I think some leaders are still under the impression that this, that these things aren't discussed. And I've had to break it to many leaders that there are more private text chains going on where there is some, you know, gossip being relayed. Uh, that they that there's some leaders who are like, really, that's a thing? Yeah. yeah, 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 it's a thing. So in any event, that was the first thing. And so what I what I discovered as I was doing this investigation is that allegation after allegation started piling up. So it started out as one thing. But as I spoke to um, person number one, witness number one, they also indicated to me that um, this person had been rumored, and and they they all said rumored in sort of you know quotes because it was pretty well known that he was having some type of an inappropriate relationship, whether dating, whether sexual, with uh, a subordinate in the department. Um, this was, by the way, made even more awkward by the fact that the accused's wife worked at the same organization. No. Yeah. Oh no. So uh, people were saying to me, you know, not only did we think he was just um, kind of gross for having this inappropriate relationship, but it was so awkward for us when we saw the wife, you know, basically many of us would just say that if we saw her in the kitchen, if we saw her outside, we would just run because we felt so awkward. Oh, poor thing. She probably thought it was her. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. So she ended up, you know, having to, to bear the brunt of it. In addition to that, um, apparently there was another girlfriend outside of work who showed up to their place of employment one day looking for him and demanding to see him, which again created another awkward circumstance for, uh, you know, the person who opened the door and and right. probably for this girlfriend who probably didn't know that the gentleman was married. Oh, spicy. Very much so. So that's, you know, witness number one says to me, oh, yeah, the allegations that brought you here are one thing. But let me tell you, there's also this this sexual harassment uh, potential, you know, component to it. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm adding something to the scope of my investigation. Was there some inappropriate relationship going on? And was it affecting the workplace? And let me stop there to talk about one of these themes. When I was doing investigations, and so many of them were related to sexual harassment allegations, I would um, often liken myself to a clinician. And what I meant by that is Patty Perez, the individual, Patty Perez, the wife, Patty Perez, the woman, has some very strong opinions about extramarital affairs. Very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, Patty Perez, the investigator, did not. It was not my business to look at whether it was morally right, you know, the behavior that was going on. I was a clinician who was going in there to see whether the behavior, A, was supported by the evidence. And B, if it was, did it somehow interfere with the workplace? Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it's like keeping um, like like bias or preconceived unconscious bias out of it too, in a way. Yeah, and, and I'll say in my case, conscious bias because right. yeah, I, I do have some pretty uh, heavy thoughts, some some very uh, <laughs> strong thoughts on men or women who are who are cheating on their spouses. Um, but but what was important here wasn't that whether he was married or not, whether the wife worked there or not, was not the issue. It was did he indeed engage in inappropriate conduct with a subordinate? Right. Um, did he create an environment where his colleagues were put in? awful, uncomfortable positions uh, and and what effect did that have on the workplace? And so I want to point out that, you know, that's sort of the objective way in which you look at these situations. Nonetheless, though, you use the right word, Katie. It was spicy what was going on. So then I spoke to a second uh, person who said to me, oh, has anyone told you that this person is also suspected of maybe doing some embezzling on the side? Um, This person had a very, very high-level, powerful position, and as a result, had um, a budget. And there were some questions about the way in which that budget was being was being spent. So, you know, no, I didn't I didn't realize that that was something because that was not part of the original allegations. And so, kind of lesson number one, in addition to the to the spiciness of the actual facts, is that this is not uncommon that, you know, you sort of open up Pandora's box when you start an investigation, if there is indeed someone within your midst who is known to be a person of, let's say, um, uh, ethics that are that are subpar, lower than yeah. what you'd like them to be, it doesn't manifest in just one way. It tends to manifest in a number of ways. That's super fascinating. And I think that, you know, I- a lot of people would imagine that it's kind of by the book investigating. So it's great to hear you talk about like how important flexibility is as an asset to an investigator. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that is, you know, the whole point of it is that you're going in there to truly get to the truth, to truly get to the bottom of, you know, what's going on, identify what those problems might be, um, kind of, you know, uh, make decisions related to 
what's reasonable, what's not reasonable, what is true and not true, supported by the evidence and not, and then what the right fix is, which I think people tend to think that these investigations, like you said, just are sort of a check a whole bunch of boxes and you'll be done. Yes. Yeah. Adjust that scope, baby. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so two kind of learning lessons from that from that first part of, of the uh, fact pattern, you know, this idea that more and more allegations came up. Um, the first is that, uh, and, and Katie, you know me, I like analogies. And so I'm curious uh, if you've ever in, in your life had any girlfriends who just make awful, and I mean, for for this uh, for purposes of of this example, it could be guy friends as well. Sure. Um, who uh, here's my shorthand? Who like to shop at the crazy mall? Yeah, seem to be attracted to people who are just not really good for them. Um, but no matter what, despite you maybe you know saying to them, "Hey, the way this person is treating you, the way this person is maybe oh I don't know dishonest or." Um, brings so much drama into your life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Despite saying that, this person, again, male or female, uh, I've had this happen to me, might say to me, but she has potential. But, you know, there's so many other good qualities about him and I don't want to give that up. Has that ever happened to you, Katie? Just once or twice. Or a thousand Um, times. Or eight. Do you want the laundry list? (laughs) My little black book. Yeah. So, Analogous to that, I, I that's sort of the situation that I saw here and in so many other cases, which is this idea that, but you know, he's so smart, he, he'll get better. Um, and and here's what I say, you know, throughout this this um, uh, segment that we're going to be doing on on all these stories, I'm going to be talking about some just really nitty gritty ways in which you could be a better investigator. And one of the things that I Uh, talk about in in my book, in my training for investigators, for leaders, is um, you need to have a methodology. If indeed you discover that someone is behaving badly, is is engaging in some misconduct, um, you can't just nilly-willy say, here's the right response. And one of the aspects of the methodology that I I talk about is um, getting someone, giving someone a score on what I call the salvageability scale is this person truly salvageable? Are they remorseful for what they did? Do they mm-hmm. recognize? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, do they even recognize that what they did might have had the effect that that uh, was the reasonable effect that resulted from their behavior? We love a self-aware moment. It's and, and that's really the bottom line. How self-aware is this person? How much are they willing to accept and then actually take action to make some changes to their behavior? Sure. Um, so that was one of the things that came up here was it's not that I'm against giving people second chances, um, even third or fourth chances. It's not that I am against um, allowing for course correction for telling someone that they can and should do better. It's being objective enough to say, are they actually doing better? Or are they simply saying, um, you know, as I've had several people say in my career as an investigator, it's not me, it's them. The problem is the other person or the other people, as opposed to me taking any responsibility. Um, so when you when you think of this, think of that you know girlfriend or guy friend who who seems to just want to stick with uh, shopping at the at the crazy mall. Um, the other thing that this brings up, this idea of you know what we started talking about, Katie, in the beginning, which is it seems to me that most people know exactly who this person is and have just been waiting for someone to come in here to right. talk to this about. Yeah. 
And that is, I don't know if you remember this, uh, this exact uh, passage from my book, but one of the things that really fascinated me when I was doing research for my book was I've always been fascinated by the question of what makes harassers harass, what mm-hmm. makes uh, discriminators discriminate, what mm-hmm. makes bullies bully, you know, kind of what is it that that really a psychological profile? And I saw this a lot. I saw, you know, some, not always, but in, in kind of the, the worst actors, I did see some characteristics. Um, so do you remember the, the dark triad? Yes. Yeah. So it's um, this this research that's been done that's fascinating about kind of toxic personality characteristics. And these researchers found that there are three in particular that when combined, um, pretty much are the are the characteristics of a, a typical sexual harasser. So this was a study specifically about sexual harassment and and more pointedly about males, uh, men who engage in sexual harassment. And the three characteristics are narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm just curious since you came to you know this book as um, with with fresh eyes, did did that resonate with you? Yeah, it really did. I think like the mix of the toxic personality traits all together, it's it's easy to go back and look and see and you know, pinpoint in different instances in your own life um where those traits have lied in people you know. Right, right. And you know, there's all these studies that talk about how some of these traits uh what's weird about them is that when used positively, they they can actually make for um, in some cases, for example, a, a really successful leader. Mm-hmm. It's when you so so whatever the positive uh, words are for those three attributes, if if you work them in that way, uh, they can be good. But when you overuse them, when they are overdone, and they delve into now these three characteristics, is when there's danger. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, But so, you know, my point to this is that this particular investigation was one where, as I started asking people, um, interviewing more people, the the consensus was, uh, yeah, er everybody knows that. (laughs) You know, this this is, again, this is something that that we all know. It's just nothing has been done about it. Um, So, you know, a a cautionary tale, certainly for, for any leaders who are in that position right now where, you know, there's this one person. And I think especially to me, this is where the direct line is drawn to for sure the Me Too movement, but many other movements in the workplace. And that is employees notice these things. If it is, you know, obvious to everyone that this person is unethical, maybe is a bully, maybe engages in some, you know, sexual misconduct, um, this is not a well-kept secret and you continue to condone that. And in some cases, even rewarded by giving this person a raise, a promotion um, is not something that goes unnoticed. And, and I'll have to put a plug in for right now where we sit in you know April of 2021. One of the things that I've seen in the world of DEI, especially over the last year, is that employees are becoming way, way, way less tolerant of this type of corporate complicity. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think part of that is a generational thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is going to um, behoove any any leader to, you know, make sure that they're taking care of this type of behavior because, um, yeah, more than anyone, younger employees are very loud and clear in saying that that is not something that they will tolerate. So what was the leader's response when you, did you bring up to them that like everyone knows about this? 
Yeah. Well, I didn't have to because as I, you know, as an objective investigator, I'm not leading the witness. And so I will just say, look, here's one allegation that I heard of. What's your knowledge of that? Yeah, Yeah, I knew about that. I'd heard about that. Right. That's something that got brought up. And that really dovetails into the the final two points that I think are important about this particular investigation. And that is two related points. One is, you know, so many leaders who are fantastic at what they do, the substance, their knowledge, their intelligence, their experience, their background, they know their stuff substantively like nobody's business. But how often do we see that, that type of leader who is very knowledgeable, promoted, into a position of leadership, but who either has no talent, no emotional intelligence, or no desire to actually do the human, the employee relations side of things. Is, is that something you've ever run into, Katie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that a lot of people have experienced. They just don't necessarily know how to pinpoint what it is in the moment. Right, right. So that was something that came up here. The leader was lovely. Um, but the leader also said things like, yeah, I'd heard about, you know, this this person allegedly having an affair with a subordinate, but I figured it was none of my business. That's his personal life. And it it took some time to, you know, kind of have this leader understand that, no, it is exactly your business. This is exactly what people expect of you. Um, and it, you know, one of the the future episodes that we're going to have, uh, we'll, we'll get a lot, uh, we'll get into that a lot more in terms of kind of, you know, how you address this. But suffice it to say that that is exactly the job of a leader is not just to kind of be substantively knowledgeable, but to um, to manage and and to lead and to have an understanding as to um, the disruption and the damage that this type of of behavior does and how that damage is made even worse when no one does anything about it. Right. And I'll say to leaders, let me just put it this way, bluntly, if you know about it, if it is so prevalent, the behavior that it's gotten to you, your employees have known about it for months or years. For a long ass time. Yes. Yeah. This is not, you are always going to be the last one to find out. So once it gets to you, you know, for sure, do something about it. Um, and then related to that is, you know, what I saw in this particular investigation is, so the leader kind of asked me, you know, off the record, well, you know, can I just ask you as somebody with your with your background, if you were in my shoes and you had an employee who had done all this, would you have done something about it? And, you know, obviously with no hesitation, I said, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> if these allegations are true, which thus far uh, the evidence is pointing to true then I don't understand why this person at the very least hasn't suffered some very serious consequences. But frankly, I don't know why you want a person who has uh, a moral compass that is this far off to even be a part of your team. Right. Um, so so absolutely, this would have been something that I would have taken care of. And the response was, well, you know, when I did try to do something about it, the response from HR was that we needed to go through a process that we had, uh, you know, paperwork to fill out, that we needed to be careful not to put ourselves in a position to um, give this guy a way to to sue us. And so it's the last point to me that this and other investigations brought up a pattern that I saw, which was um, HR in particular, but, but other leaders as well seeing this process as mechanical, again, mm. as a checkbox, as not human, you know, we, we well, right. we've got this. And, and you said it in the beginning, uh, Katie, that it, flexibility, um, using your judgment 
is just as important to having a process. I'm not saying don't have a process. I'm saying that if you hold so steady to that process that you are ignoring the human realities of what's going on, that process is not only going to do you no good, it's going to end up hurting you. Absolutely. My best friend is in HR as well. Um, and I always joke with her because she is very black and white about things. And I'm like, girl, there's like, you're swimming in gray. You're swimming in gray right now. Completely. In 1,200 yeah. investigations, I did not have one that was black or white. Not one. They all, it's just, I would always say, it's just a matter of what shade of gray it is. That That's really what it is. Um, so there you go. Katie, any parting words? This was the, the inaugural episode talking about cheetah porn, talking about, you know, behavior in the workplace uh, that, that uh, everyone knew about. Any, any final thoughts for our listeners? Wow. I, I mean, I am glad I strapped in at the beginning because what a bunch of plot twists, you know, I was really expecting this to go one way and it went a complete another, which um, is exactly how investigations are in real life. Shows the importance of flexibility. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, with that, I'm glad that I kept you entertained. I hope that the listeners have uh, finished their popcorn and their tea uh, and that they not only got some some great uh, you know spiciness out of this episode, but also learned a thing or two about uh, what to do and what not to do in the workplace. So we will sign off uh, for now. Stay tuned for the next episode of You Can't Make This Shit Up. Uh, but for now, here's to saying adios to drama. Thank you.